Hey everybody, welcome back to this week's episode of The Dose. It's been a whole week and I've missed you guys and this episode is very, very exciting. I'm Robin B and today we have joining with us Dr. Gregory J. Schwartz. He is also known as the Planet Doctor. He has a PhD, he has accomplished so much as a professor, world traveler, father, and environmental activist. He also is the author of the book, Bright Green Future, which talks about those individuals who are making Earth a better place to live. So join me as we talk to the one and only Dr. Gregory Schwartz. Hi. Hi, Dr. Gregory. How are you? Wonderful. Glad to join you. Awesome. How's it going? I'm having a great day. A little bit of smoke up here. I'm in Northern California, but other than that, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty foggy here, too, in in L.A. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a little overcast, too. Exactly. Okay, so we're going to start the show off. Thank you for joining us. Um, First, for people who don't know, can you give everyone a little bit of background about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I... My brand, my popular name is The Planet Doctor on my website and it's on Instagram. Um, I'm a professor of environmental science. Uh, so I've traveled the world, studied this for my most of my life, and write a lot about how people and the environment interact, how that keeps us healthy or not, how that keeps the planet healthy or not, and how we really have to include both people and the planet in our decisions about how we live right that's awesome so okay so the first way we start off the show is by doing hot topics are you ready i'm ready okay awesome for the first question you've played a multitude of from back to point guard and even baseball in san diego can you talk to us about what it was like to compete in your 40s for track and field? Yeah, so I'm, I, yeah, I played a bunch of sports, um, dabbled, played pro football for one year. I was a lot bigger then. Now I'm 48, and I still just want to compete, you know? Yeah. And, um, cause I, and so it's a blessing to be able to compete. And I was always one of the fast players in football, not – sometimes not the fastest but I was fast enough that I can still tap into that and so I compete in sprints and last year at uh it's called master's track when you get mm-hmm. old like me and um <laughs> you last year I was in my age category I was top five in the U.S. in the 100 and 200 meters and wow. so I'm still trying to inch up and do better than that but anyway when you when performance is your goal rather than just aesthetics and aesthetics is a good you know, uh, encourager as well. But when performance is your goal, I think you get the best results. In other words, if you're like, hey, I want to run a mile in seven minutes or whatever, your body will change, you know? Yeah. So uh, it's just a great community to be in. I run with the, the track team at the college where I teach. And so they keep me fast. Yeah, that's awesome. So is there a lot of people your age group that does this? It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it exists. There's many mm-hmm. more in my age group that jog or do 5Ks, 10Ks. There's not as many that sprint. Right. 
And so it's a it's kind of a small niche. I mean, most of the people that are really into it, I know them around the U.S. and they know me and uh, just like a lot of niche groups, you know, but um, there's so much love and camaraderie. And uh, really, frankly, a lot of them are in such good shape that it it, it just recalibrates what we think uh, you should look yeah. at and, and, and behave like at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, you know? Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I hope to be like that <laughs> for sure in the future. Um, I'm sure you will be. Thank you. Uh, so in addition to all these things that you've accomplished, you are also a certified Thai massage therapist. How did that happen? Yeah, you know, that, my wife jokes with me that I've had, we made a list the other day, and I've had about 70 jobs. And <laughs> it makes me sound scattered, but it makes me feel more rich. She's at one. She's a singer. And she's at one job her whole life. And I, I, so anyway, I was doing my, long story, but it was my first PhD, which I didn't finish. I finished my second one. But mm-hmm. in Thailand, researching neoliberalism, and I, I, and I got a Thai massage, and it blew my mind. And so I just stayed and got trained to be a Thai massage therapist. It's called Thai Medical Thai traditional medical massage and and then I came here and got recertified and I did it for seven years. Wow. It just taught me so much in just an organic uh, raw food cafe. I, I did Thai massage. It was a whole phase and I, uh, I just learned a lot about the human body and really about my own body because of that and um, really Eastern massage treats the body as a as an energy system and west massage the kind of sweetest mm. treats it more like a machine like oh if you have a part that hurts you rub that part but Thai massage is more like well you have a whole system and let's find the points where we can loosen you up and that will help the part in the middle that hurts and so it's a different approach that really has helped me yeah so would you say that you changed lives like have you like alleviated some pain in your patients Oh my goodness. Well, of course. And I mean, uh, it's very, very cathartic. And I like to give massages more than I like to get them. And everyone's always like, what do you mean? Because <laughs> I, I really got uh, developed, you know, quite a sensitivity. And so I can feel it's a catharsis for me. I can feel the release in them. Right. And so it feels amazing. It's just, it's kind of like if you're a therapist and your, your, ther- your, your, your client heals, you feel great. Um, yeah, I used to work on the San Francisco Ballet. I've worked on a lot of my track friends, a lot of high-level athletes, and they, but mostly just, you know, everyday people. Um, and I believe in it so deeply as a preventative measure. You know, we don't uh, look at prevention enough in this culture. Um, we wait till we're sick, and then we try to solve it then. Right. So, um, but yeah, it, uh, it, I learned a lot. And now, I mean, I just can... I mean, like most massage therapists, I could touch someone, especially in certain points. Yes. And I can basically tell how you've been living, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh. Yeah. Too much fried food. And they're like, what? How do you know? That? How did you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So now on to your spiritual journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned? Yes. I mean, uh, it's such a big question. And frankly, <laughs> I don't really get into that much and I'm I, I'm excited that you you asked and I mean I'll give you a 60 second answer it was really it was a a massive spiritual awakening that took me it took about five years from my life um 
and of course it it added so much but it's it was so big and so deep and so difficult and so beautiful at the same time but the, you know just to distill it down to bullet points mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> i would say that i learned number one that everything that happens is working in our favor and i think it's a big misunderstanding personally when we look at pain and hardship as things we just want to wish right because those are part of the inner and i know someone like you looks at it, probably looks at it this way too pain and problems and especially repeated problems those are important messages and communication and massive opportunities to correct something that is wrong um, in our lives and get better. And so when I used to have problems, I would get excited and I would go, oh, wow, I, I, I can solve this. And so, you know, and I can get better. And so rather than thinking, oh, I wish I, you know, we so often pray for like, mm. my stomach pain go away or please let me pay my bills or whatever. And that's of course good and okay, but a deeper question, what is this stomach pain telling right. me? What are my financial hardships telling me? Is there a belief I should let go of that's holding me back? You know, because our beliefs are so powerful. And, and, that, and that brings me to this statement that I always say, that a problem arises so that the larger problem can be acknowledged and solved. Mm. We look, you know, so myopically sometimes it's like, oh, my God, I got into a car accident. How am I going to solve this? And like, well, and let's just say you get into whatever, let's say you have a specific kind of chronic health problem. Right. It's like, okay, that is a lesson. And we have to look at why, look at why, look at why. It could be a spiritual reason. It could be a, a, an energetic reason. It could be a physical reason, like you're eating bad food. But um, it's to look at it rather than just immediately try to solve it. And so, um, and then uh, just to go deep on one of them, the last, <laughs> the last one I would say is that I really... I spent a lot of time, let's just say, in different vibrational frequencies. Um, I didn't, I, I would, I'd be in my room for days and, and, and my family would say, I would say, oh, I was in there for a couple hours. And they said, no, no, you were in there for three days. <laughs> and so, I mean, I was really disconnected from the physical dimension. And what I so, uh, was shown and, you know, take it or leave it, but it's it's ingrained into me at a cellular level is that things like doubt, fear and lack, when we feel those things, mm-hmm. those are illusions. Those are illusions that we've developed and that we believe in. But when you get deeper than that, those those are simply not real. And what's real is abundance and connection and unity. Um, and so I reconnect with that anytime I feel those. And I say, well, no, 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 that's an illusion. Right. So, again, that's, but that's as far as I'll go into that. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty deep. No, those were great, great, you know, things to touch on. And it takes a lot of soul searching to find those things and to not only acknowledge them, but to actually, you know, live them out to treat the disease and not the symptoms. That's kind of how I see it too. Um, So great. All right. So (laughs) that was the hot topic segment. And we're going to just transition into cool. class is in session. Um, so this is a little bit more in depth and a little bit more questions, but I'm sure you can handle it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. All right. First question is, please share with us the preparation that it took to put together your book, Bright Green Future. <laughs> um. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I, I you know, I've, I've uh, studied this my whole life, a lot of travel and scholarship about fixing the planet, written articles in academic journals. And, and most of the books and articles I've written before were to educate, like, hey, this is what's going on in the world um, and on the planet. But this book is more looking, it's more to uplift. And it's written, uh, it focuses on the mental aspects, the cognitive aspects of fixing the planet, of climate change, what beliefs we have that are leading to climate change and holding us back from fixing it. Uh, I have a real cognitive approach to a lot of my uh, teaching. And so, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I what, what, what the book is, it's just, uh, we just profile 100 people who are innovators that are moving the world in a more sustainable direction in food and energy and industry and urban planning. Um, and so you see how the world is getting better uh, in real ways. And right. kind of like I was saying, you know, you see these problems in your own life or in the world and you can see them as opportunities rather than just problems to wish away. Yeah. Um, and, and I wrote it with a great, it's the first time I've ever written a book with a co-author. Uh, his name is Trevor Cohen and just a great mind, a professional writer and um, great mind, great heart. So a good guy to write a book with. And uh, it, uh, it makes a product when you write something with someone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, that's um, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. It sounds really good because... You know, nowadays, everybody's a little bit more health conscious than ever before. So I'm sure that book will help a lot of people. Um, so what would you say for people who are health conscious? How can they, if they're struggling to maintain their weight, how can they do so with a vegan diet? Absolutely. Um, so there's, I mean, what I personally would say uh, quite a journey of health myself, but um, is that and these are things that we generally know, but sugar, processed foods, and then large amounts of animal products probably stay away from. Um, definitely sugar and processed foods. And and meat, unprocessed meat uh, in, in, in small amounts is, is not the worst in the world. And I get in trouble with vegan groups for saying that, but I don't, think, I don't think everyone has to be vegan. I think it would be amazing. And we, we, we do have to move in that direction to save the planet in a very significant way. But I don't want to scare people away and say, like, oh, you have to go completely vegan to be healthy. Right. Uh, but moving in that direction would definitely help everybody and would help the planet. Um, and the easiest way to start that is just replace your meat with meat substitutes. Right. You know, like Beyond Meat, Field Roast whatever you want, that's the easiest way. It requires so little effort because if it's too much effort, we won't continue. Yeah. You know, um, and then beyond that, you know, then you start to feel probably feel better. You start to be around other people who might eat that way. And then you get a lot of momentum and then the next changes are easier, you know, um, but just to take that first step and really some people say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm vegan during the week or vegetarian during the week. And then I eat whatever I want on the weekends. That's a great, <laughs> great way to do it, you know? Yeah. Because then it's not so scary. Exactly. Small steps, small steps. Yeah. So, okay. So you visited a lot of countries just like myself. I love traveling. Oh. What would you say that you learned from those experiences? 
That's great. You're a traveler. If I could, yes. If I could just ask, how many countries have you gone to? Yeah, so I'd say around 20, 25 countries. Whoa. I just, yeah, it's been a lot. Um, I went to Thailand as well. Amazing place. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. It is. It that's is. That's great. Um, yeah, there's no better education than travel. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, and that, I mean I, I'm a professor and I'll say there's no better education than travel um, and the experiences you have when you travel. Um, you know, what I noticed, and this really triggered me to study the earth, is that I noticed nature is so resilient and amazing, but it's also being so degraded. Uh, I drove, I took bus rides through South America, through Central Africa, through Southeast Asia, and I just saw so much burning rainforest. Mm. That smell just soaked into my lungs and my mind. And I just, uh, this is in the 90s ever since. And so um, I, it, it struck me. Right. And um, I thought, okay, I'm going to devote my, my teaching and my writing to solving this problem. And, and I realized the main, you know, again, it's like, well, what's the problem? And that's what's the bigger problem? We say, oh, climate change is the problem. Well, it is. But the bigger problem is our relationship with nature. Yeah. We have a disconnect at times and we forget that we affect nature so much it affects us and we're a part of nature, not a part from it. And so really just in like academic terms, there's a separation between the production of goods and the consumption of those goods. Like we don't see where our food comes from. We don't see mm -hmm. where the VCR was made. People don't even have VCRs anymore. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? And so yeah. we don't see that, oh, this forest is being cut down for this wood deck or frankly, I mean, and also the disconnect, like most deforestation happens to produce beef, but we don't think about that. And so there are all these disconnects between what we consume and how that affects the planet. And so I, that's really my job is to make that connection. Right. So, okay, so I know that you mentioned environmental racism. Can you tell people what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so people of color, so we'll just talk about the U.S. People of color disproportionately live in areas that are affected by pollution, toxicity, and other environmental hazards. Um, and there's, there's also a strong class-based component to it. Um, where if you're rich, you generally avoid those things, but mm -hmm. there's a strong race-based also uh, component. And so, you know, we're talking about living near refineries, industries, nuclear plants, and that translates to health problems like mm. asthma, cancer. And it's, uh, again, it's disproportionate. It, it's just like, I mean, a hot topic right now, a terrible hot topic is police violence and right. police kill white people but they disproportionately kill people of color so that's the problem um right. it's a disproportion and so also we look at you know there's local issues like refinery and if you don't live near it it's not so bad but then there's global issues as well which are strongly class-based so you know climate change is happening but if you're a rich person or a rich country you can adapt fairly well because you have money, yeah you know if you have a beach house in Miami, which will be underwater in a few decades, um, you can move. 
But if you live in Bangladesh, which is going to, I mean, we're going to have 50 million refugees that are flooded out of Bangladesh in the next several decades. Uh, they're, most of them are destitute. And what are they going to do? It's incredibly, incredibly hard. And so, you know, the most common job on the planet Earth right now is organic farmer. Most people don't know that. Yeah. Organic plot of land. If, if you don't get enough rain that year, or if you get scorching heat that kills your crop, you have no other source of income and you cannot adapt. And so anyway, that, and so it's, it's, um, you know, the poor are affected by it more and also in the U S the poor, but also people of color are more affected by, uh, in what they call environmental hazards. And, uh, so it's of course makes sense for people of color to care about, you know, taking care of the environment, but, but really, it's the people, whoever they are, whatever color they are, people with money who need right. to step up and make those tough decisions to help everyone. Wow. Wow. That's very interesting. I remember one of my first episodes on the podcast was mentioning that, how the disproportion exists in our neighborhoods. Um, okay. So just a quick question. What do you actually as a professor? So, uh, you know, most professors will teach a few. Um, mm -hmm. I generally will teach uh, just your basic. So I'll teach uh, introduction to physical geography, which doesn't mm -hmm. sound interesting, but I <laughs> and then I took that. I took that. Oh, college. did you? <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. I really did like geo. I was really good at it. OK. Oh, well, I'm really glad yeah. to hear that because it sounds like you're <laughs> a decent teacher. Yes. Very good. To me, I mean, if you can't make the earth and nature and this home that we live on interesting, then you need a new job because, mm. I, you know, so I teach that and, and I, it really, I teach it like an environmental science class. Like, well, what car do you drive and what do you eat and how do you, your habits right. and how that affects the planet. And then I teach introduction to cultural geography, which is, you know, much more uh, economics and food and religion and culture and how globalization affects us and how race and culture, race and ethnicity affect us and, and our habits toward the environment and how we are doing away with centuries old indigenous name of capitalism and things like that. And, right. you know, they're bad to capitalism, yada, yada. Um, and uh, those are the two basic courses that I've taught. I've taught other ones in laboratory classes and, but it's basically a cultural and a physical geography class, which I really enjoy. And I wrote the book for uh, those classes. Wow. So, passion. yeah, that sounds amazing. So then how were you able to get your lectures placed on Netflix Last Chance You? <laughs> so it's a sore point for me because, so Last Chance You is a show about, uh, college football teams, uh, your college football teams who, who are doing really well, usually national champ or state champ. And the college where I teach, Laney College, was national champ uh, two years ago. Uh -huh. so, so they said, oh, let's cover them. And so they picked uh, two professors to highlight the whole semester and just video them and put them, make them a part of the show. And they picked me because I know I work out with them. I know the coaches so well. So they videoed um, – most of my lectures and even me working out with the team and yada, yada, yada. The crazy thing is, is at the end of the day, <laughs> most of mine just ended up on the editing room floor. I mean, I made some cameos, but um, 
Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in there, but I was, I, it, you know, it's just like anything. It's a big, 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 big show, and they had hundreds of hours of footage, and so they have to trim it down. But, I mean, I was, I was like, texting the director constantly, and he was like, well, we'll teach you about <laughs> tomorrow, and we can't wait to highlight this and that. And they were in my office hours, and I was mic'd all the time. And so it was a little bit of a letdown because I was thinking, literally, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, let's say 5 million people watch this. Because it's a really high high rating show, uh, I was like, they're all going to see a, ge- a geography yeah. lecture. Like, who the hell watches a geography lecture? And so, it it I thought this is a big chance. So you know what? That's okay. I have uh, that's okay. I have another uh, uh, show in the works right now called The Planet Doctor, and uh, with a production company. So my my lectures, well, that's not based on lectures. It's much more entertaining. But they'll they'll get out there one way or another. It will. It will. Okay, so then what would be your suggestions for medical schools in particular to promote promote more holistic teachings in their curriculum? So medical, I mean, you know, I'm not an MD, I'm a PhD. So right. I, I do read a lot about that. Um, and, uh, you know, around 1911, there was a big shift in our medical schools in the U.S. It was a big push. They were mainly holistic at that point. And there was a big push to push them away from being so holistic. Um, and uh, I think that, and so uh, it, 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 frankly, it was under the influence of Rockefeller. It was a big, big push. And so mm-hmm. I think being more holistic uh, would be incredibly beneficial. It would be difficult because of the monies involved at this point. Um, but, you know, of, of every industry I think so so it would be, it would be difficult in short um, right but at the root of every industry there are even ones that have gone slightly astray which I, I think you know our allopathic Western medicine has gone I'm very glad it exists because certain surgeries certain drugs oh my goodness certain things save yeah. lives you know um, I just think we we lean a little too far towards solving symptoms and not the root cause and so um, but as I was, was going to say that um, at the root of all of these industries, energy, food, medicine, even if they've gone astray, there are good people. There are good intentions. There, right. there is the, the human capital to solve these problems and the intention. Um, and really, ultimately, when we do the right thing and move the world forward and move health forward and move all these things forward, there's more money to be made. There's more health because we create so much good and so much progress in that and so i think it's a misunderstanding we'll make money by maybe by you know hurting the system or hurting Mm -hmm. and so anyway uh that's a vague answer but i i think but there's a lot of small there's a lot of doctors and drug companies and uh supplement make in the right direction and we have to latch on to them, give them attention and love and um, help, you know, the industry follow that momentum. Yeah. Yeah. I got to keep it going. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I know everyone listening has learned so much from you from a different perspective. Um, and so just so that they can keep in touch with you and follow everything that you're doing, can you let them know where they can find all your Instagram your information, everything like that? Yeah, you bet. So um, my website is uh, 
theplanetdoctor.com, all spelled out. And it's the same on Instagram. It's just at theplanetdoctor, um, T-H-E-P-L-A-N-E-T-D-O-C-T-O-R, just all spelled out. And uh, you can find me, find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope that you and your family continue to be safe and keep doing what you're doing. Likewise, Dr. Robin, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Wow, you guys, what a great episode. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, for giving us all that insight. And now it is time for my favorite part of the show, which is the Ask the Doc segment. So you guys send in weekly questions, and I choose one to address on the show. And so this week's question is, what is the best way for me to begin a plant-based diet? Okay, so we know that Dr. Schwartz kind of touched on this, and I've touched on this in previous episodes. Um, And if you go back to my YouTube, you'll see that there's a video on veganism as well. But the best way to start is through meat replacement, right? So the substitutes that you can find in any grocery store, in your local grocery store, um, you may not see them in the produce section in some grocery stores, but it could be in the frozen section. But what it is is that it tastes similar. It's plant-based, but tastes very, very similar to meat. So for me, that was the easiest way to start. I started with something that tasted like meat, so I did not have that deficit or that texture loss. Um, Some brands are better than others. Uh, My personal favorite is Beyond Meat. Um, I do notice that they change their, I should say, formula or their recipe quite a lot to make it taste more meatier, but I really love their original um, bratwurst sausages that they have. So that's great when you're making spaghettis, when you're having breakfast. So, you know, that's your sausage replacement. And then they have amazing, amazing, outstanding burgers. Their burgers are actually super juicy. They actually brown just like burgers would. And they're very filling, surprisingly more filling than a regular burger. Um, And then they also have the ground beef, which is great for tacos. It's great for spaghetti and pasta as well. And, you know, you can just sprinkle it on a salad and go about your way. So those are my suggestions for starting your plant-based journey. All right, you guys, I hope you understand the importance of making sure that our environment is a great place to live. That means taking care of it. While we were in quarantine, we've seen so much improvement in our environment, whether it be less pollution or growth in our forests. So let's continue this fight to make sure that our environment is a safe and great place to live for all living creatures. That's all for this week's episode, you guys. Thank you for listening and tuning in. And remember, if you want to support the show, do so by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review over iTunes or Spotify. And don't forget to continue to submit your questions for the Ask the Doc segment. 
and I'd like to thank Dr. Gregory Schwartz for joining us today, and I hope you guys learned a lot. See you next week on The Dose.